chapter. It's a long chapter. Chapter 11 is super short. Chapter 12 makes up for it by being twice as long. Um, we're going to get through half of it this week. We're going to pick up the other half next week. The plagues have happened in Egypt. Moses has been in this uh, representing God in this battle between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt throughout the whole time. Pharaoh's heart has uh, started out hard. It only got harder, and at a certain point, God said, all right, you've reached the point of no return, and I'm going to use your hardness to display my glory and my judgment. And so we looked at this last plague of the ten. There were three cycles of three, all increasing in their ferocity and in their theological significance towards the gods of Egypt. And the final one is the death blow, literally. The final one is the ultimate judgment on the gods of Egypt. And it happens through the death of the firstborn of Egypt. So we're going to read, uh, we're just going to work our way through some of it and talk about some of the things in it. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Now this was the month of what would be Aviv. This is the spring. The Jewish New Year is in the fall. Rosh Hashanah is later in the fall after the harvest has come in. So there's an agricultural year that marks the beginning of the new year is after the harvest and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and all of that. But God says, this is going to be your spiritual beginning of the year. You're starting over. This event is going to mark your beginning of your existence, who you are as my people. So it's a monumental event that's about to happen. Uh, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb or a baby goat. The words, that, it's not the English word lamb. It's a small, uh, either a goat or a sheep, either or. Uh, for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're determined, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Not eat the meat raw or cooked in water. Roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that night, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
So the Passover that God's talking about, he's, he's explaining to them, this is how you're going to, this is what you're going to celebrate. This, this event is how you're going to do it. And this is the, this is the first Passover, the only true Passover. Every other Passover celebration after this will be a memorial and a re, um, a reimagining of this event, the Passover. So this is a one-time deal. Every year, the, Egypt, the Israelites didn't slaughter lamb and put the blood on their doors. That, this, that's the, the Passover in Egypt, this one-time event. There's a lot of significance in this and some things that we gloss over when we want to read along and get to the action. Uh, some of the points worth mentioning is that the Passover was to involve a lamb, a year-old male without defect. A year-old lamb is a fairly large animal. Uh, don't think of the baby, you know, the petting zoo, the little baby lamb that they let you pick up sometimes. Those are usually a month, two, three months old. A year-old lamb is fairly full-grown. Um, and it was to be celebrated. It was to be a meal. It wasn't just killing the animal for the sake of the animal. This, this is how they ate in the ancient world. It's how they eat around the world today. Uh, killing the animal, there's, there's a sacrificial element to it. But it's also how they eat and how they provide for themselves and how they get their clothing from the skins and how they, you know, all of that. So there's, this is a somewhat of a normal idea of taking a lamb, slaughtering it, eating it with your family. Um, God programs this thing, this event around a shared meal. He, he, he enacts his deliverance and his creation of this people around a shared meal. It's one of the reasons I like this Bible study as a lunch Bible study, because it's 4,000 plus years of God's people sharing meals together. It's something we've lost in our churches. We have communion. What do you get? A little tiny shot glass and a piece of dry bread? That's not a meal. It may be how you celebrate communion. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's not a meal. In the history of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, they shared meals together. They ate together, eating together. There's something spiritually significant about eating together. Why was Jesus always eating with his disciples? Why was he always eating with sinners, eating with tax collectors, sharing meals? There's something significant that we've lost in our culture of fast food and grabbing a bite in my cubicle and you know getting the pizza and giving that to the kids while I go do something else. There's all of that stuff. We've lost this element, but God, in his preparation of the Passover, he said, your, your primary identification as my people will be celebrated every year through a meal. And it's not just a meal to nourish you. It's a meal to bring you together as a community of my people. It's not just the case where well, some families are too small. They can't afford a lamb. Or there's just two or three of them. They can't eat a whole lamb. You know, a whole lamb could feed up to maybe 20 people or so. He said, no, no. I, it's not about the food. Take one lamb, as many families as that can feed, they come together and they share that lamb. There's a communal aspect to this. The first time he refers to Israel as the community of the Israelites in the Bible. This is the beginning of them as a people, as a community, and he's bringing them together around a meal. So now you start to see when you read the New Testament, you can see why Jesus ate so often with people and why Jesus chose the Passover to be the inauguration of the new covenant when what was the originally what was for the old covenant the celebration of the exodus event 
and the saving uh, of the Israelites and the firstborn and all of these theologically rich terms, that's what Jesus chose to use as his means of communicating to his people for all time what he was bringing about. So one of the things to notice, again, it's a meal. It, but it's a meal not like any other meal. It's not eaten as you would eat another meal. In Israel, and in, 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 I mean, even around the world today, cooking an animal over the fire takes a lot longer than cooking it, uh, than, than boiling it in a pot. Um, cooking it, boiling it takes it's like three to four times faster than cooking it over an open fire. Because over an open fire, so much heat is lost. And you know, if you've ever, even roasting a hot dog takes a long time when you're sitting by the campfire and you're hungry. You're just like, all right, it's, it's good enough. You eat it and it's cold in the middle. Um, now think about a, a, an animal roasted whole over a fire. So there's a little bit of inconvenience in this. Why? Why couldn't they boil it? Why couldn't they cook it in one of their ovens, one of their pots? Well, because those things were already packed. Those things were to be packed up because they were to be ready to go. Roasting over fire is a quick, it wasn't quick in its cooking, but it was, you didn't need all the implements you needed for cooking a full meal. You didn't need a big pot, you didn't need a lot of water, you didn't need the preparation of the dishes and all of that. Just an animal, a stick, a fire, you're good to go. So it was, very, it was a meal that was, even, it's, even the preparation was done by people who were in a state of haste and readiness. That's why I said you're to eat it with your with your cloak tucked in your belt. When you walked in the ancient world, you would gather. So we don't wear robes a lot these days, but if we did walk around in robes, if you needed to run somewhere in a robe, not very convenient. So what would you do is you would gather the back of a robe, you'd pull it up from in the front, like kind of a wedgie of yourself, and you'd tuck it in your belt. And now you have what looks like a big diaper on. But you can run, you can move, you can go. Your cloak is tucked in your belt. That's what it means. Not tucked in like to look nice, but gathered up, bunched up, tucked in. Now I can get on the move. Whereas if you're sitting around your house, you don't wear your robe that way. You let it flow. You let it wrap around you. You let it do whatever it is robes are meant to do. You don't tuck it in your belt. But they were supposed to eat it with their robe tucked in their belt, meaning eat it ready to go. They were to eat it with their sandals on. You didn't wear your sandals in your home in the ancient world because they were covered with all the garbage and junk you picked up on the road and in the fields and everywhere else. But they were to eat it with their sandals on, with their staff in their hands. You didn't walk around with your staff in your hand. Your staff was a traveling implement. So everything about this meal is basically eat it, share it, celebrate it together, but do it in a state of haste and readiness because when I get the order, you're gone. You're out of here. It's a meal that celebrates, that looks back on the bondage, but looks forward to the freedom. So they were to eat it in expectation of being free, of being ready to go as soon as Moses or God or somebody gave the order, they were ready to leave. So that's the sense behind all of these directions and what he's wanting to instill in the people. This is how they're to do it. Now this freedom for the Israelites is going to come at the expense of the Egyptians. Uh, everything in this section is set up to, to be the mirror opposite of how Israel was treated by the Egyptians. Remember back at the beginning of Exodus, God said, Israel, my firstborn, is being oppressed, is being in bondage to Egypt. And Egyptians slaughtered the firstborn 
of the Israelites by throwing them into the Nile, remember. This is a national, um, this is a national judgment for a national society-wide treatment of a people for 400 years. This isn't God's normal everyday response to sin. This isn't God's normal everyday response to even society evil. This is the culminated 400 year long buildup to a final event where God's going to free his people and it's going to come at judgment on another people. And the judgment's going to be severe and it's going to be terrible. And we talked last week that that's something we lose sight of because we're New Testament believers. We lose sight of the fact that God reserves the right to judge peoples as well as individuals. He reserves the right to, to be fearsome in his holiness. The holiness of God is what Exodus from here on out, from, from, from now until the end of the book, the holiness of God is going to be right at the forefront. And the holiness of God is like the purity of a blast furnace when it meets with the normalness of humanity. And so God is going to have to put something in between his unmitigated holiness and the normal, uh, uh, unprotected humanity that's been tainted by sin, that's been, that's been distorted by sin. That's a theme that will carry throughout the entire Bible. And it's, it's beginning here, at least on a corporate level, in Israel. But what you're going to see is God says, I'm going to go throughout the land. Now, it's interesting because later traditions will talk about the angel of death or the destroyer that goes throughout. But God here specifically, like multiple times, says, I am going to do it. I'm going to go throughout the land. I will see the blood on your door. So how can it be the angel that destroys and God doing it? Because, as we've already talked about in Genesis and in Exodus, it's the angel that is the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. For you grammar nerds, it's an appositional gender. It means the angel who is the Lord. God appearing in localized form, going throughout. So God is not doing this from afar. God is not a God who doesn't get his hands dirty. God is a God who comes down and sees the plight of his people at the beginning of Exodus. He's the God who comes down to see if the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was as great as the cries that went up uh, would lead him to believe. He did that with Abraham. God is a God in the Old Testament who comes down and gets involved with his people for good or for bad. He gets involved when it's to come and bring grace, to appear to someone like Rahab, or to appear to someone like Hagar in the wilderness who needs survival, who needs encouragement, or when it's to come and to express judgment at a national level over people who have been oppressing his people for 400 years. So it's important in, in Exodus 12 and in the next section to keep that in mind, to keep, to, to now we're, we're seeing God when God, it's like when your parents, you, you know, when, when your parents have a child and the parents love the child, the child loves the parents, but the child may disobey and the parents will threaten, hey, I'm going to spank you. And the child just laughs it off and keeps disobeying. The parents say, hey, I'm going to spank you. Well, if the parent continues to do that and doesn't ever spank the child, then the child doesn't, the lesson the child learns is, you don't have to listen. The parent is not going to do anything. You know, if all you ever hear is, Billy, don't do that now. Billy, I'm really upset with you. I'm, you know, people that parent loudly in public, we all get annoyed by it. If they don't ever act on it. No, there comes a point where the parent needs to take Billy by his arm, take him into the bathroom, and set him straight. Right? There's a time for that, and this time has been reached in, in God's time clock, in God's timetable. He's, he's, he's reached the point where now judgment is going to fall and it's going to be horrendous. And Israel, the thing is, 
in, in this that's so fascinating is God doesn't need the blood of a lamb to differentiate who's Israel and who's Egypt. He's done it three times, six times already in these plagues. How many times do we read the plagues touched the Egyptians but not the Israelites? In Egypt, all the cattle died, not one cattle died in Israel. There was darkness in Egypt, but the Israelites had light. God can differentiate his people. The blood is not for him. It's for them and for everybody watching. The blood was a public declaration of their faith that this is the God of Israel. He is the God he's got over Egypt, and he's the God who's to be obeyed. And as a public profession of that, we're going to put the blood on our doorposts. We're going to show so that everyone who sees this house knows that this house put its faith in the God of Israel. And every house without that on its doorpost, whether Egyptian or Israelite, was not protected. God gave a condition and he gave a warning and he gave a way to avoid the judgment. This would not have been a closely guarded secret. Egyptians would have heard about this. And many of them who had already started to begin to fear the Lord would likely have taken note and perhaps even put the blood on their doors as well. We don't know, but we do know that a mixed multitude is going to leave along with the Israelites. So it's not out of the question to think that some of them had been listening in and taking note of this. But regardless, the blood is there for their protection. And it's there to mark them out for their identity. And that's why God is, uh, the whole Passover is, is wrapped up in identity. Who you are as God's people. Are you, are you the people who obey, who come together as a community, not individually? It's not like, well, I've got my lamb, so I'm going to eat it and feed my family and mark our door and we're done. It's a community. You have your lamb. There's a family over there. They can't afford a lamb. Bring them into your household. Bring them in to share the meal. So there's this communal aspect, but it's also a marking of their faith outwardly. It's an outward expression as well. And so it's really important. This is, this is establishing Israel for who they are. Um, verse 14 goes on to say, This is the day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then as part of this, for seven days you're to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh will be cut off from Israel. The NIV reads, must be cut off from Israel, meaning that it's something that implies that it's a judgment that the Israelites would do, but actually it's just the Hebrew is will be cut off, meaning it's something that God himself does. Uh, being cut off, some people think it means to, to have been banished from Israel's community, or others think it mean, might have even meant to be executed, but in, in the Hebrew scriptures, the, the sense is that it's something that God would do. It's a cutting off in God's eyes of the person. It's a way of God saying, you are no longer part of the redeemed. You are no longer part of the covenant people. Israel was the elect. They were the chosen, their wanton and willful neglecting of the covenant and their disobedience, intentional disobedience to God. So even in this, there's a model of salvation and, and, and perseverance and, um, and, and all those theological themes that will be tied together later in the Bible. But uh, anyone who reads anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh will be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That's all you may do. 
celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. He uses that word for armies again, your divisions or your ranks. Uh, God is, is, the irony is he's not bringing out an army, he's bringing out a bunch of slaves. Probably never picked up a weapon in their life. But God would describe them as his army going out. Because, remember, back all the way back in Genesis 15, way back when all of this was first promised to Abraham, God said, I'm going to bring your descendants out of the land that they've been enslaved in. I'm going to judge the nation that enslaved them, and I'm going to bring them into the land that I promised you, which is Canaan, because they were going to be the judgment of God on the Canaanites. They are going to be God's army, God's judgment on the people whom God is judging as well. Egypt aren't the only people that are judged in the events of the, of the first five books of the Bible. It's double. There's, there's two points to it. Israel's freedom is freedom from Egyptian slavery. And then Israel is going to be the instrument that God uses to then bring judgment on these specific peoples in Canaan. Not everybody they come across. Not anybody who's on land that they happen to want. None of that, but very specific people groups that God is now also the time is up and it's time for judgment to fall on them as well. So there's hints of that in describing this, this rabble of slaves coming out of Egypt as an army in their divisions. So celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you're to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your house, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it will be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. So God is hammering home this idea of no yeast, right? Does God not like big puppy yeast rolls? Are they somehow evil? You know, is the bread that, that we eat, even, even most churches that take communion, they use bread, actual bread with yeast in it. Um, so why is he so insistent on no yeast here? There's a couple of reasons, again, first having to do with the symbolism. Uh, yeast takes time to, to make bread rise, to make dough rise. And the whole point of the Passover celebration is to celebrate the haste and the readiness for this event. So it's to commemorate hey, we, we don't eat bread with yeast in it now because then they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread and let it rise and then bake it. They had to leave fast. So the meal that we celebrate every year is going to involve that. It's going to commemorate that. So there's that aspect to it as well. Yeast symbolically, in the New Testament, Paul will use this as well when he writes to the Corinthians, that yeast is an image, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad for the same reason that yeast permeates. All you need is a tiny little bit of yeast into some dough for it to work its way through because yeast is a fungus. It's, it's a growing, you know, it, it can even be spread airborne. If there's yeast in the house, it's not unthinkable that it could get in some bread or some dough that's in the same house, even if you don't actually mix it together. Um, so yeast has this, this, um, this aspect of being able to permeate and infect everything around it, for good or for bad. So Jesus may talk about the kingdom of heaven being like a little yeast put in some dough and then it works its way through. Um, but also Paul will talk about the yeast of bitterness that we have, the, the sinfulness that so easily permeates and infects and moves throughout us. 
So this is a tangible symbol, an image, a teaching moment that God uses for his people that communicates a theological truth without him having to spell out theological terms for it. And by doing this action, by searching the house and removing the yeast, there's some symbolism in that of searching our lives and rooting out the things that can easily infect or easily spread. And so that's why in Jewish households, many Jewish households, you know, even the searching out for the yeast at the beginning of Passover, the seven days, even that is something that's, that's kind of celebrated or done ceremonially. It's done with care. I think sometimes it's like use a feather and little spoons or something. It's, 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 very, it's very intentional and methodical. And it communicates something to the people. You know, a little bit of yeast can work its way into any of the dough, even in the whole house. So there's, there's, there's elements of this. Remember, God's teaching not just these people, but their offspring and their offspring and their offspring throughout all time. He's giving them tangible object lessons that communicate deeper truths. So it's not like we have to look at this and decode the magical formula or figure out the precise significance of each thing. Well, the yeast symbolizes this or that or that. It can have multivalence. It can have a number of things that it symbolizes. The, the important thing is, is what they're doing and how they're doing it all together as a big picture. Because it's all communicating an aspect of who God is and who he wants them to be as his people. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading about feasts, you're reading about ceremonies, you're reading about sacrifices, you're reading about you know, agricultural rules and laws and all of these things you come across that you will come across, particularly in the next half of the book of Exodus, you have to keep that in mind. The laws were there not because those specific laws create exactly the type of society God wants, but because those laws together create a society that communicates to a watching world the type of God that he is and the type of people that they are to be. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind as you come across things, you know, festivals and ceremonies and all these things that seem weird or seem odd or seem out of place. So, verse 21, Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch, literally a bunch, uh, of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. And the word that NIV translates as put there is actually the word nagat, and it means to touch or to smite or to strike. And it's the same word used of all the plagues of Egypt. So there's a bit of wordplay here. It's like this plague is going to touch, to, to nagat, to strike the Israelite homes. But the irony is that that's what will protect them. Whereas the homes that aren't touched will be touched by the plague. When the Lord goes through, verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer, the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, back in Genesis 15, observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it's the Passover to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. 
The people bow down and worship. This is the first time the people, the Israelites, have bowed down and worshiped since chapter 4, verse 31. That was the last time they worshiped when Moses appeared and told them what God was going to do. And then they immediately took back that worship when things got hard and the plague started and their workload increased. And there was this tension between them and between Moses, and they even accused Moses. And Moses then ran to God and prayed, what, what's going on? So there's this up and down relationship, and now we've sort of come full circle, and you see that the Israelites, uh, the elders at least, they, they realize this is it. They've seen these plagues. They've watched the nine plagues happen. They too have learned from these plagues, just as the Egyptians have learned as well. They too have learned to fear God and to bow down and worship which was one of the reasons that God did all of this entire event the way he did was to lead to, ultimately lead to, worship of him, which is the same as service to him rather than service and worship to Pharaoh. So their response is the fitting one. It's the right one. And they did all that he commanded. That's, that's the key. That those two things are back to back. Um, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded. Their worship... If they had just bowed down and worshipped and then not put the blood on their doors, not celebrated the Passover, their firstborn would be just as dead as any Egyptians. Just the worship doesn't mean jack squat to God unless it's followed by obedience to his commandments. And again, that's something that Exodus will hold high that many Christians today have neglected. Because on this side of the Reformation, we think faith alone, faith alone. And the book of James comes along and says, where in the world would you get that idea? Where would you ever get that idea that it's just faith without works that, that is, brings about salvation? No, 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 no. Two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, the Reformation got a lot of things right, but it got some things wrong. And one of those was the distinction and the bifurcating of faith and works. Because in the Old Testament, they're not separated. Your faith was shown by how you lived. Your faith didn't save you. God saved you. God saved Israel. God is the one sovereignly bringing them out. He declared their freedom before any of this. They were saved first, but that salvation had to be actualized by them obeying. If not, then their faith was the same as the Egyptians. And that too has strong ramifications today for modern Christianity as well. Faith without works is not faith. It's meaningless. Last thing of emphasis before we go, uh, we'll stop at this section. We'll pick up uh, chapter. We'll pick up at verse twenty-nine next week. Um, but it says, "When your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you?" This is another thing the Exodus teaches us. The primary means of religious instruction in Israel was around the dinner table. The primary means was not Sunday school. It wasn't Torah school, it wasn't youth group and pizza parties, it wasn't podcasts, it wasn't watching preachers on TV or going to church. The number one way that faith was passed on from generation to generation was around the family meal. It was the parents' responsibility to teach their children, not the preachers, not the priests, not the Levites, not the rabbis, not anybody else's. Primarily the number one spiritual uh, authority were the parents. And that's something that, again, as Christians, we have abdicated that to the children's ministry at our church. What's their job to teach you in Sunday school? No, 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 no. It's their job to reinforce in Sunday school what you are teaching them at home. So we, we don't go to church. We bring church together when we meet together. 
And this was key for the Israelites. And it's how even throughout the centuries, Jews have remained a distinct and a dedicated people in all the cultures that they've gone to because their faith still consists, those who practice, Orthodox practicing Jews, their faith still primarily begins at home rather than being farmed out to the ministry. So we're out of time. We're going to pick back up. We're going to see what happens. Verse 29 through the end of the chapter next week. Let people know. Bring a friend. Bring a co-worker. Um, in the meantime, if you miss a week or you can't be or whatever, that's why the camera's here. We record every week. So hop on YouTube. Look for the channel Disciple Dojo, all one word, and you can see each week's video. Have a great week, and if you want some more food, there's plenty left. Thanks.